0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: All right, let's begin in prayer, guys. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly King, consoler, Spirit of Truth present in all places, and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Cuddeback, welcome back. Good to have you with us.
2: Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very excited. I have to say Plato always just kind of raises my spirit. So as I was looking over things, I was just getting really excited, and I'm a little bit hyperventilating, trying to think how we're gonna how we're gonna get this all in here. But we're not gonna worry about that. It's never about squeezing stuff in. We'll we'll uh, just kind of let the spirit move us as to what we concentrate on.
1: We're gonna give you a little extra time here at the end, also, Doctor. White, do not feel pressured for time, number one. But I have to say one last thing on for you, and that is that I stood there. On the Acropolis of Athens, overlooking the the, the marketplace where uh, Socrates um, was teaching and where he was arrested, his little prison there, and so forth and i 'll tell you that while the rest of the group had no idea who Socrates was, <laughs> could have cared less. I had a burning love in my heart that you placed there many years ago for a great man, and it is the custom of the church to place an image of socrates and an image of plato on either side of the front doors of the church because they were the men that came closest to divine revelation by their natural gifts so that was uh i want to thank you for that gift of placing that love in my heart for the great wisdom of the ancients and i look forward to spending this time with you tonight well
2: thank you We are we are grateful together to god for his many Many blessings in, in, in an astounding way that he that he has used even these men before the grace of Christianity to, as you say, open open the lights of natural reason and and I and I did want to open with a certain caveat. Father does not intend. I do not intend to canonize Plato and Socrates. We don't mean to make it sound as though they are teaching Christianity as such. We don't mean to make it sound as though they saw. Everything there is to see that they didn't make errors. No, they made errors. There's definite issues that they did not get clear. And I just want to say, were we doing a fuller study, we'd look a little bit more at that. We're not doing that fuller study. And so we're going to be focusing on astounding insights that they have. And so I just, I do want to open with that caveat. Please don't think that it's therefore. Um, anyone who reads Plato and Socrates is going to have their eyes open to our Lord and to the highest truths. No, that's certainly not going to happen. And uh, it, it, again, it's not as though they are infallible guides to us. Nonetheless, they were in God's great providence men that can teach us much. And it is particularly on some of those major things that I think we can learn from them and simply marvel together at times at what the light of natural reason can see. I I think sometimes it's just worth standing in wonder at what a mind unformed by the light of divine revelation can see. And it just, it makes us grateful for the power of that light. And then it makes us grateful for the fuller gift we have of the full revelation through our Lord. So, with, with that as a little bit of background, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of a quick wrap-up on last week, just a very fast tour of a couple of the main points, and uh, then we're going to go ahead and, and, and jump into uh, the things that we have before us here today. So, we opened the Republic by seeing, in book one, two main issues. What is justice? This amazing kind of queen of virtues, which for Aristotle, too, and St. Thomas will be the queen of the natural moral virtues. What is justice? And then the big question of, is it really better to live in justice, to live a just life, or not? Is it really the case, even given how much those who are just, who are striving to be just, can suffer, something of which Socrates is well aware, will it always be the case that it is better to be just? Those are the two foundational questions that give direction and structure to this amazing book. They are not the only questions by any stretch of the imagination. We we basically came to the first answer last week and what is the nature of justice, though we certainly could do a bit more on that. We're going to end up today by going to book nine and looking at Socrates' ultimate answer to the question of, okay, given what justice is, is it better to live the just life or not? And again, even there, we're only going to be able to give one of the three major arguments that he gives there. But the nice thing is my main interest are the kind of collateral insights that come along the way. And there's no particular one that I'm looking to convey, but as we go, I'm gonna really highlight a few and just say, here's something I really think we can take with us and be inspired by. So remember, still talking about last week, that when he started to tell us more about what justice is, at the end of book one, he gave us the very famous Argument rooted in the notion of function and excellence. I'm just going to take a a, a few seconds on it just to remind you of it. And and to highlight and bring out maybe something that didn't so strongly last week. When he gives the argument about the nature of justice by focusing first on human nature, he is giving us a foundation here for understanding an objective standard for morality. It has always, always been a serious and burning question. Is there an objective standard? Is there a standard as it were written into reality itself as regards what is good and what is not as regards how human beings live? And this is probably the clearest, most articulate, Original formulation of if you look at what it means to be human, therein one can find the basis for understanding that certain ways of acting are in accord with that and thus good, and certain ways of acting are not. And so, that notion of function, of of, of really looking at what most of all characterizes human nature. And to settle on that fundamental insight that man is most of all designed to be rational. That humanity is most of all expressed and lived in using our reason. But then, of course, it must be in using our reason well. Says you would judge anything by a kind of, does it do whatever it is that it does? Does it do it well? Those are doing with excellence. And so this Greek word arete, A-R-E-T-E, means excellence. And is also the word for virtue. And so corresponding to the function of a thing, corresponding to as it is, what is the way of acting that is most unique to and most expressive of this kind of thing, for human beings and it being rational activity, then there must be a way of, of doing that well. And that is our foundation for talking about virtue. That is our foundation then for talking about what this kind of all-encompassing virtue is, justice. It is, in a sense, nothing more and nothing less than living out human life rationally well. So to do it, to live virtuously is constitutive of human happiness. To act against virtue is to be acting against what it means to be human. Now, still, ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't mean that it is immediately obvious uh, what exactly the various ways of acting virtuously will be. But in any way, this speaks with a certain confidence that if we look humbly, with patience, and with perseverance, we will be able to discover more and more under the light of natural reason, in community, passed on in tradition, we'll be able to discover the ways of acting that constitute doing the human thing well. This when we came to book four then and we had completed building a city and we said within that city we're going to look for what those virtues are, we went through the list of the cardinal virtues. And and, and I noted he just kind of presents that list as already the fruit of a humble human observation about life, that human excellences naturally divide themselves into several kinds that govern different aspects of the rationality of human life. And so we looked at wisdom, which is more the intellectual side, and then courage, and then temperance, culminating in his view of justice, which interestingly, he sees as kind of a bringing together each of the others and somehow kind of encompassing them all. And each part of us, each power within us acting as it should be in proper relation to the others, achieving a certain interior order. This is what he's calling justice. Now, again, I can't attempt to therefore spin out from there okay so quick here's how we get all our basic rules of the moral life from this no that's that, that just not going to be possible and we can't demand those things as though they would just simply come about easily we watch though the beginnings of this great tradition obviously a tradition that had already been passed on that continues to be kind of unfolded through further development of insight into just why is it this way? Why are things ordered as they are? Part of the thing that we can't really spend much more time on now is how he divides out the different powers of the soul. And the thing that I just most will emphasize here is his seeing reason on the one side and what he calls appetites on the other. And the key to the right functioning then of human nature is that reason rule over the appetites. Now, someone can just say, "Oh, well, what 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 exactly does that mean?" Reasonable question. What exactly does that mean? I think if we're willing to be humble and look at the reality, we can see how there was an insight then, and an insight through the ages, coming right up to the present that we have lower desires which have their place in life and can be pursued well. But when they are kind of put first, when they are not ordered in view of a kind of hierarchy of goods in human life, then those desires can overthrow everything, causing great harm in human life. This is a fundamental truth that they, that they saw and they expressed that under the great cardinal virtue of moderation or what later is, is called by the medieval's temperance. So I will often say to my students, because they're often concerned with this, I just I say this quickly and in passing, you can't judge the thought of a thinker by, hmm, well, will this be convincing to my neighbors and friends? Will this be what changes the mind of those people I know at work who don't think this way? The truth is not always convincing to everybody. It's a hard saying. We we need to recognize this. I think we, I've made this mistake often myself, and this is why I I pause on it for a moment. If we're thinking, well, my gosh, how will that absolutely convince someone who didn't see see it, why chastity will be important. Ladies and gentlemen, there might be no argument that will simply convince the unchaste that they should be chaste. Certain things it takes an openness and a willingness to see. It's astounding how willfully blind we human beings can be. So I just warn you by you don't necessarily judge an argument or you judge an insight by, well, how immediately convincing will this be to people, especially when we're in a context where people have been very malformed already, making it more difficult for them to have these insights. This is a rather dramatic situation. May I go Christian, as it were, for you for a moment? It's very good that we remember how many people listened to the Incarnate Word Himself and turned around and walked away. The truth does not always convince. All right, a major theme throughout the Republic will be education. And we will see as we go that the term education for Plato, for Socrates, means, interestingly, fundamentally, what it also means for St. Thomas Aquinas. It, It refers to the whole realm of raising a human being up well, unto being what he should be. Fundamentally, pardon me, unto becoming virtuous and wise. So do not ever reduce the realm of education simply down to the academic. Academics play a very important part in education, but take education in the broad sense as the formation of persons. From the start, Socrates here is keeping a focus on if we're going to talk about what a good city, what a good community would be, wherein we'd be able to discern what the various virtues will be. He's consistently saying to even think that there could be such a city, we're going to have to think about how you would form souls to become what they should be. You'll never have a good city in their mind without having an outstanding education. You likewise will not have good and strong individuals except through some type of formation. Now, formation doesn't have to have happened when one was young, although when one is young, it is of particular central importance. But I like to put it, the well-formed human being does not happen by accident. This is something that they were highly aware of and were intensely interested in. The wise must particularly give attention to what is necessary to helping others become wise And virtuous and so we're going to be seeing some different things about that as we go I noted to you last time that in book three he's going to spend a bit of time talking about the kind of stories that should be part of education the kind of music that should be part of education and I just uh, again I noted to you I have an ICC lecture on on music but I can't resist mentioning quickly and in passing for Socrates good music is a gift from the gods that is a kind of gratuitous and extra powerful way of helping form the soul towards virtue and towards insight one of the things that makes him particularly grateful for it is he says that music can be at work in forming the soul When the realm of intellectual formation per se is not yet even possible, we can be forming the young by exposing them in various ways. Sometimes that means teaching them to do it. In any case, by exposing them to simply hearing. And right now, again, we don't have time to go more into it here, but just to be recognizing that he put a priority on that here in talking about how you'd form a good city. And I likewise note that Aristotle. Plato's student does the identical thing in book eight of his politics. When it comes time to talk about education, music will be a key part of that for the young and for the adult. And I've wrapped that up by what to me is just an astounding little gem. It seems to come out of nowhere. If you happen to have my book, it's on page 100. It's in book four of The Republic. It is at 425, those marginal numbers, and then you have the letters. Is it 425, and I'm at A, 425A. Now, Andy, did you say that you have uh, have my version, and so we, we could do the little uh, dialogue thing together? Yep, precisely. Can we, can we give that a try? Let's do it. We'll how that works, and if everybody doesn't like how Andy does it, we'll just give him the gong and drop him, and I'll do it myself, <laughs> all right? How about that? I'm going to start reading right before the 425. Okay. Then as we said at first, our children's games, Plato not Sarkis, they always have an eye for the young. They're always thinking about it. What do they need? How can we serve them better? As we said, our children's games must be from the very beginning, be more law abiding. For if their games become lawless and the children follow suit, isn't it impossible for them to grow up into good and law-abiding men? It certainly is. But when children play the right games from the beginning and absorb lawfulness from music and poetry, it follows them in everything and fosters their growth, correcting anything in the city that may have gone wrong before. In other words, the very opposite of what happens where the games are lawless. That's true. These people, I like how you're doing that, Andy. You're, you're making me look good. All right. These people will also discover, sorry, I shouldn't have made a joke right before the best line. Right? <laughs> never, stop laughing. Now, here is this astounding line. These people will also discover the seemingly insignificant conventions. That's always been one of my favorite phrases in in the whole book. These people also discover the seemingly insignificant conventions their predecessors have destroyed. Which ones? Things like this. When it is proper for the young to be silent in front of their elders, when they should make way for them or stand up in their presence, the care of parents, hairstyles, the clothes and shoes to wear, deportment, and everything else of that sort. Don't you agree? I do. Pause. I, I, isn't that list just a jaw dropper? It's like, w- w- where do you get that from? Connecting it with that phrase, the seemingly insignificant conventions i mean i mean w- you know which one are you going to focus on for a moment I, I, you know even right down to hair right i mean isn't it interesting when you're having a big culture shift when people are going to rebel you know, isn't it interesting very very often that this take you know hair is here's what. No, no, i'm not i'm not making that the, therefore hair is a serious moral matter in itself but it's just there's a connectedness of things and I mean, honestly i think care is the, the least important on the list but it's interesting that, that it gets in there the clothes i mean I talk about something huge the care of parents do we judge our culture as socrates would by how we care for our elderly how we care for our parents the rub of manners and etiquette the respect that is shown especially by the young for the old. How he goes through several examples of that. Deportments. And it's talking about posture, how we move. We'll just wrap this up quickly. I think it's foolish to legislate about such things. Unless he says you're not going to pass a law that you you have to take care of your your parents in a certain way. He's not going to pass a law that you have to wear these clothing. He's not going to pass a law that the young have to stand up in the presence of the old. These are not the matters of law. Verbal or written decrees will never make them come about or last. How could they? At any rate, Adamantis, it looks as though the start of someone's education determines what follows. Doesn't like always encourage like? Does. In the final outcome of education, I suppose we'd say is a single, newly finished person who's either good or the opposite. Of course. That's why I wouldn't go on to try to legislate about such things. We're going to stop there. These things, in other words, he's going to say are, they're a matter of custom. This is a great basis in philosophy for seeing certain things need to be legislated. Others have to be worked on as a community, in our households, as regards kind of governing these areas by custom. So I just, I find that such a helpful n- little text. In any case, one of encouragement, I think it all is encourage, encouraging to parents who at times just are thinking, well, you know, why don't you just give up on those things? Why, why, why do I need to care about those things? Somebody around us are just saying these things don't matter. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna say that, therefore that means an exact course of action has to be taken, and frankly, we have to live in the Asian, which we are, and there might be certain things we would have liked to have done with our children, do ourselves, that we won't be able to, given the culture in which we are. But in any case, the Plato raises this for us and alerts us to, these things are not insignificant, and it's not unreasonable that we give them proper attention, turning to our friends, turning to our mentors to help us think about that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now we'll come back to education in a little bit. Now we're going to turn the corner and start to do a little bit of metaphysics. All right. In book five, which I which I didn't, have you read I didn't assign you to read it I'm nonetheless going to take you to a particular spot right now and this is this is going to be the technically most challenging part of what we do all right so don't be scared we're gonna we're gonna start to lay out a little bit of, of Socrates metaphysical worldview here if you have the book you can take a quick peek at 476 a that's not a page number that's a marginal number 476 a Alpha, in my book, as I flip to it, is on page 151. And the same account is true of the justs and the unjusts, the good and the bad, and all the forms. Each of them is itself one. So that key word, ladies and gentlemen, forms. At the center of Plato's worldview, there's certain things we call forms, the most famous word that he uses. Aristotle takes the word from them, although we'll use it in a slightly different way. I'll tell you just a little bit about that. So I'm going to talk to you about those forms. Each of them is itself one, but because they manifest themselves everywhere in association with actions, bodies, and one another, each of them appears to be many. That's right. So I draw this distinction: on one side are those you just now called lovers of sights, lovers of crafts, and practical people; on the other side are those who are arguing about and whom one would alone call philosophers. How do you mean? The lovers of sights and sounds like beautiful sounds, colors, shapes, and everything fashion out them, but their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. That's for sure. In fact, there are very few people who'd be able to reach the beautiful self and see it by itself. Isn't that so? Certainly. What about someone who believes in beautiful things but doesn't believe in the beautiful self and isn't able to follow anyone who could lead him to the knowledge of it? Don't you think he's living in a dream rather than awakened state? Isn't this dreaming, whether asleep or awake, to think that a likeness is not a likeness, but rather the thing itself? that it is like. I certainly think that someone who does that is dreaming. And we're going to, we're going to pause there ladies a gentlemen. there's a bit, there's a bit there. We're not going to be able to unfold. What I want, want you to see is this is Socrates, Plato's famous treatment of what's called the problem of the one and the many. And so I'm going to kind of put it in Socratic terms and then I'm going to connect it up uh, to a, a way that might be a little bit more easy for you to understand. You're saying that, There are forms of things. This comes up in different dialogues. For instance, in the dialogue called Euthyphro, the question comes up what is piety? The man that Socrates is talking to, named Euthyphro, starts to give various examples of pious actions. Socrates says, Thank you for pointing out examples of piety, but I didn't ask you to give me examples of piety. I asked you to tell me what is piety. What is the unchanging nature of piety itself? He uses the word form for that. In other words, what is the form of piety? It's a word, ladies and gentlemen, that, that normally, this is an exact fit, but basically Aristotle's gonna use the word nature for that. A fundamental insight that Socrates, Plato have into reality is that there are certain sets unchanging ways of being that you can call forms. You can speak of the form of tree. In other words, what Aristotle would call tree nature, the form of man or human, the, the unchanging way of being that is the human way of being. There's a form, this unchanging what of human. There's the form of just. There's the form of pious. There's the form of water. These are unchanging ways of being. Now, there are many instances. That's the word that will often be used here in the text. There are many instances of those things. Let's think about this. There are many instances of human nature. There's one unchanging way of being, the human way of being, the form of man. There's one then form of man, but there are many men. The men actually come and go. But the form of human nature does not come and go trees come and go but the form of tree does not come and go individual just actions come and go but what it is to be just does not come and go so the natures themselves have a certain unity and unchangingness Th- those are the ones and then on the other side there can be many instances of that one way of being one very important way of seeing that and this this is the basis for considering what's called the the problem of universals which is one of the biggest issues in philosophy or is one a central issue in the middle ages what is the relationship between the one and the many and at this point again this is just a cursory introduction but showing how plato the master raises this here I'll I'll put it to you this way. One great insight here, one way of expressing an important truth here that I'm asking you to try to see is there might be many men and those men can change, but that doesn't mean that what it means to be human can change. There are many trees, but what it means to be a tree does not change. So is this tree and that tree the same the word same here, the notion of same is very important. Is this tree and that tree the same? Are Andy and I the same? The answer to that question has to be yes and no. We're not the same in as much as we're clearly different individuals. We are the same in as much as we are both human. It's critical to be able as we look at reality to look for sameness, and difference to learn to think in terms of kinds it is through those unchanging kinds of which we form universal notions that we come to know reality i've given an icc lecture on the problem of nominalism and nominalism is a way of of thinking philosophically that denies that there are these unchanging ways of being that go back to to so socrates as insistence, Plato's insistence, that there are these unchanging ways of being, that we can know. And this is key to the intelligibility of reality, that our mind can be tuned into these, as it were, fundamental natures, these fundamental whatnesses in reality. All right, there was your brief introduction to the notion of forms. And he is going to be then saying what the philosopher is looking for is to try to come to understand those forms. We can't always just be moving around on the world on on the level of what is changing. We need to be able to get to certain insights into these unchanging ways of being, which are called forms. So that was the key thing I needed to introduce you to from book five. What we're going to do now is turn to book six. And that I in the assignment I especially had asked you to read book six and book seven carefully let's just pick up here I should stop does anyone have any questions I, I'm just going to ask right now whether anyone has any questions before I go on to book six
3: yes that's fair there's at least one question here in the Q&A box um but you also feel free if you're like ah that makes sense to address at the end you can Janine writes in I've always remembered this quote from Plato's Republic uh is this a true quote quote, when the tyrant has disposed of foreign enemies by conquest or treaty, and there is nothing to fear from them, then he is always stirring up some war or other in order that the people may require a leader.
2: Um, I would have to look again, whether that is, whether that is a direct quote that would be in book eight, where he definitely does talk about tyranny. I haven't looked at it immediately here if i've chosen not to i love book seven where he goes through the different different basic regimes culminating in the decline going from regime to regime to the tyrant and the and the main difference between the tyrants and those other regimes is the tyrant looks to his own good as opposed to looks to the common good and there's different aspects of the tyrant that how the tyrant has to look live in fear uh, etc i'm gonna say in the name of time with apologies, I'd have to have you read that back to me, and I'd have to kind of think a little bit more carefully. And right now, that is going to take us a little bit off. That makes sense. There we go. All right, here we are in book six. Socrates, one, one of the things he's up to here is he wants to be talking about what can make a good city possible. Now, why is he talking about what, what can make a good city possible here? Well, because to pursue... The goal, remember, the goal is going to end up including a number of different things of showing what justice is and showing whether the just life is truly more happy than the unjust life. He needs to, at least he says he needs to, he's taking it as a good excuse to do this and in any case because there's a lot of great things to do in his doing it, is to build up what a truly good city would look like. And one of the things that he always is going to emphasize, and this connects to the point and you can see how it would lead to then his giving an analysis of the tyrant and the problems of the tyrant is who needs to rule. But a central concern of the Republic is what is necessary in order to try to get the right people to be ruling. If you you were to to boil down the kind of one issue in political philosophy and looking at the different regimes, what can we do to try to make sure the best that we can? Nothing's going to, nothing will absolutely assure it. But what can we do to most try to assure that those who end up having authority will be wise? In other words, we'll have an understanding of the ends to which the authority, authority is entrusted to guide us. And it's authority is always about guiding, directing, ordering to some end. The wise need to know what the end is. The wise is the one who knows what the end is and the ways of achieving it. The wise then are in a good position to exercise authority. This is a beautiful principle that applies all across life. All of us will be in some position to exercise authority. But here he is asking who should be an authority in the good city, and this is where he famously makes some people laugh. He refers to the philosopher king. And what he means, ladies and gentlemen, is not so much that you should run out to all the universities and grab philosophers such as myself, oh, I I think I hear someone knocking at the door now, and come have me go off and rule the people that are studying philosophy saying are not necessarily the ones then that you need to take off and, and put into government. But he says, either you need to take someone who has given real attention to these fundamental truths of reality, or in any case, go to the ones who are in a position where they are ruling and then form them in wisdom. Either way, there will be particular challenges. All right. So he's he, he's looking at the question of philosophers as ruling, and I just want to want to uh, treat one particular thing that comes up here in Book Six as regards this, because it's one of the most famous uh, images. There's a lot of famous images, and we're going to deal with a couple of them here today. And one of them is of the ship, and the ship owner, and the captain, and the navigator. So here we have a argument that is made against having philosophers rule. And the argument is that philosophers are useless. In other words, the argument is philosophers just sit around thinking about things. So how could you possibly want to have a a philosopher being ruling because the ruler is the man of action, right? And so to address this, he gives us one of the very memorable images of the republic that is so um, helpful in helping us understand things. Something that makes us think of another, dare I say, great great teacher that we know that always took very homey images to try to convey deep truths well there's a great that already had been a great tradition for this and so we have the captain and the ship and you, you read it i'm just going to remind you a couple things point to it and we move on in the story there what he says is the person who is truly capable of being the captain of a ship is the one that to most of the others on the ship seems to just be a stargazer. And so the the, the crew on the ship notices, Hey, this, this, this guy over here, he's always, he's always over there when we're, when we're putting up the sails and we're swabbing the decks, what's he doing? He's gazing up at the stars. The guy's always gazing at the stars. We're doing the work. And he's gazing at the stars. The guy's useless. What good does it do to look at the stars? Of course, you you see where this is going. It's, it's It's such a brilliant image. Well, of course, as you know, in reality, the only way to reliably navigate a ship at the time was to navigate a ship by the stars. And you had to know the stars remarkably well. And to know them remarkably well, you had to take a long time gazing at them. And so the man who is, in fact, most capable of being the captain of the ship is the one that to those who are not in the know seems to be useless because he's been over there gazing at the stars. If people actually understand what's going on and realize who this man really is, they're going to say, here, come here. You be the captain. You navigate this ship because you have taken the time to look into the Deeper, or we may say in this case, literally, higher things, so as to be able to guide the ship. Well, simply and quickly, by analogy, then, he says the philosopher and, and, and his point isn't someone living a particular profession. His point is the kind of person that is absolutely committed to coming to see the higher, the deeper truths, coming to know the forms of things, those unchanging ways of being. The one who's absolutely committed to that is the one that is going to be well suited. To guide the city. So what's this? So he has used this image to respond to the objection philosophers are useless. Well, philosophers are useless if the society, if the people, don't understand that the truths by which we should guide our lives are the truths that one comes to know by steady, persevering, disciplined contemplation. If a society, if a community does not realize that those are the truths that give direction to life, then indeed they will look at those that would be most suited to rule and they will say they are useless. What are they doing over there? I'm going to go ahead and and leave that Leave that neat little point right there. You know, even when I said the, the, you know, the line that people would say, kind of what are they doing over there? The thing that comes into my mind is, again, a very good analogy for that is to say t- today's society, looking at those who are living the contemplative life. Those who are, in fact, tuning in to the highest things, the things that most give meaning to life, the, mo- the things that most give a foundation for right order, And our society literally looks at them and wonders what in the world are they doing over there and goes on absolutely ignoring them and chooses people to rule over them that will serve their petty projects, needs, and desires. All right. I wrap up at 500 beta, which in my book... Is on page 174. No, it's at the bottom, page 173. 500 beta. Get ready. You're going to be my yes man again here, Andy. Ready to be the yes man, responding to Socrates. Well, my book, page 173, towards the bottom, 500 beta. This is kind of his wrap up here on the philosophers, and this is going to now move us into the juiciest part at the end of book six, then into the juicy part at the beginning of book seven with the cave. Ready? It's all coming together. Then don't you also agree that the harshness the majority exhibit toward philosophy is caused by those o- outsiders who don't belong who burst in like a band of revelers always abusing one another indulging in their love of quarrels and arguing about human beings in a way that's wholly inappropriate to philosophy I do indeed pause it didn't prep you for that but there are many who go by the name of philosopher as there were then who really were more sophists who Aren't true philosophers, but do a lot of things that make them look like philosophers and give philosophers a bad name. I need to go on. No one whose thoughts are truly directed towards the things that are. Anytime you hear him say that phrase, that means the forms. The things that are. Adamantus has the leisure to look down at human affairs or to be filled with envy and hatred by competing with people. Indeed, as he looks at and studies things that are organized and always the same that neither do injustice to one another nor suffer it, being all in a rational order. So this is the contemplative man looking at the higher things. He imitates them and tries to become as like them as he can. Or do you think that someone can consort with things he admires without imitating them? I do not. It's impossible. When the philosopher, by consorting with what is ordered and divine, and despite all the slanders around the say otherwise himself becomes as divine and ordered as a human being can. It's absolutely true. Pause. Note already the kind of insight into the contemplative life there. You, you, you spend time, among the higher things constantly thinking about the higher things this will begin to transform what we are having us become more divine as divine as a human being can and if he should come to be compelled to put what he sees there into people's characters whether into a single person or into a populace instead of shaping only his own do you think he will be a poor craftsman of moderation, justice, and the whole of popular virtue. He, least of all. Ladies and gentlemen, that's one of the main notions I'd love for you to take with you today. The man who is seeking wisdom, the man who spends time seeking the higher things, studying the higher things, contemplating the higher things. What has Plato just asserted that he can become? One of our beautiful phrases for the evening. A craftsman of virtue. Isn't that glorious from having spent time studying and thinking about the higher things in this case, not only virtue, but specifically what the virtues are, what the real highest perfections of human life are. That person will become more capable of being a craftsman of it in his own life and in the lives of those he loves and perhaps over whom he has authority. I throw out, if you happen to be parents, isn't that a great line? We are called to become craftsmen of virtue. We craft it in ourselves. We do all that we can. Not as though we we would ever be sufficient as a cause to bring about in others, but at least an instrumental and helping cause to to be a craftsman of it. How can we try to arrange things so that we will bring about virtue in those under us? But we have to know what virtue is. These terms have to mean something more to us than than just having a vague sense. What really is chastity anyway if we're going to craft it in ourselves and in others? We have to have studied it and understand what it is and what is justice anyway? What is courage anyway if we're going to be a craftsman of it? Isn't that a great line? All right. We're now going to be introduced to one of the most remarkable aspects of Plato's worldview. He's continuing to talk more about what those higher things are that the philosopher is looking at, and he is drawn to the question of what is the highest thing of all that the philosopher would most of all, in the wise man, the man seeking wisdom, would most be interested to come to know. Reading this, it might not have struck you, but I hope it does strike you as we look at it now. I'm on my page 178. This is the marginal 504D is in David. 504D is in David. My page 178. There's something more important. So right in the middle of D. There's something more important, however, even for the virtues themselves. Pardon me. More important. However, even for the virtues themselves, it isn't enough to look at a mere sketch as we did before while neglecting the most complete accounts. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to strain every nerve to attain the utmost exactness and clarity about other things of little value and not to consider the most important things worthy of greatest exactness?
3: Well, it certainly is. But do you think that anyone is going to let you off without asking you what this most important subject
2: is and what it concerns? All right. So watch what Socrates here. So he's just been asked, what's the most important thing you could try to study? No, indeed. And you can ask me too. You've certainly heard the answer off enough, but now either you aren't thinking or you intend to make trouble for me again by interrupting. I suspect the latter. For you've often heard it said that the form of the good is the most important thing to learn about and that it's by their relation to it, the just things and the other things become useful and beneficial. You know very well now that I am going to say this, and besides, that we have no adequate knowledge of it. And you also know that if we don't know it, even the fullest possible knowledge of other things is of no benefit to us, any more than if we acquire any possession without the good of it. Or do you think, that it is any advantage to have every kind of possession without the good of it, or to know everything except the good, thereby knowing nothing, fine or good? No, by God, I don't. I'm going to just go a few more lines here. This is going to be a little bit deep water, so We're just going to kind of jump into the cold water, get invigorated, ha- have hopefully a little insight or two, and then we're going to have to move on. With apologies. Uh, did you just say, uh, no, I don't. Furthermore, you certainly know that the majority believe that pleasure is the good, while the more sophisticated believe that it is knowledge. Indeed, I do. And you know that those who believe this can't tell us what sort of knowledge it is, however, but in the end are forced to say that it's knowledge of the good. And <laughs> that's ridiculous. In other words, if you answer the question, what is the good, by saying it's knowledge, and then you're asked, well, knowledge of what? and you say it's knowledge of the good, you haven't really answered the question. Of course it is. They blame us for not ha- knowing the good and then turn around and talk to us as if we did know it. They say that it's knowledge of the good as if we understood what they're speaking about when they utter the word good.
3: That's completely true.
2: What about those? You're a good actor there, Andy. Well done. What about those who define the good as pleasure? Are they any less full of confusion than the others? Aren't even they forced to admit that there are bad pleasures?
3: Most definitely.
2: So I think they have to agree that the same things are both good and bad then. Isn't that true?
3: Uh, Of course.
2: It's clear then, isn't it, why there are many large controversies about this? How could it be otherwise? One more paragraph. And isn't this also clear? In the case of Just the Beautiful Things, many people are content with what are believed to be so, even if they aren't really so, and they act, acquire, and form their own belief on that basis. Nobody is satisfied to acquire things that are merely believed to be good, however, but everyone wants the things that really are good and disdains mere belief here. That's right. All right. Look, ladies and gentlemen, what's going on here? Good question. First of all, he has just asserted that the most important thing that exists is something that he's just going to call the form of the good. Now remember, if he's talking about the form of something, what he means is kind of the unchanging nature of that itself. So if he if he's referring to, referring to the form of tree, you could also just call that kind of tree itself, the the unchanging tree nature. If you then likewise say the form of good, you can say what he means then is that would have to be good itself, that which simply is good is what it means to be good i want to pause to reflect in a world that has so many dark philosophies it tends to be so skeptical tends to be so negative here watch a man by the light of reason struggling i mean he's struggling and he's and he and he's saying here I have absolute confidence that the highest thing that exists is something that is good in itself. But you ask me then, well, what exactly is that? And he's saying, I don't know. I know it's good. And I know the mo- the highest thing of all must simply be, as it were, purely and perfectly good. We'll call it the good itself. It's the form of the good. And he's going to go on and say, and this is what gives meaning to life. It's what makes anything else that is Exists, certainly makes anything else is good, be good. It must all come back to something that is simply good itself. This is at the heart of reality. He's about to say here, everything It listen to these words I'm about to say. I mean, you all as Christians might might tend to just kind of give me a little bit of a ho-hum here. Can I just prick you, poke you a little bit, kick you, and just ask you to to, to just think with Socrates for a second? Think if you don't have divine revelation, you might be thinking, well, why should I do that? I do have divine revelation. I think it's an important exercise. It's something that I think our Lord invites us to do because it will give us a better appreciation, if nothing else of divine revelation itself. Socrates, Plato hold everything is the way it is because of the form of good. Everything is the way it is because at the root of everything is the ultimate form that is the source and the reason for everything and it is pure and perfect goodness. To me, I just love to pause and say, wow. He sees it. And he sees that he doesn't see it completely. And Indeed, I, I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, particularly if you had had to set aside what we know of our Lord. I mean, can we just, just do this with me for one moment? What do you think God is anyway? So just, just, just think with me on that the unchanging, the eternal, the all- perfect. Well what does all perfect mean? perfect what? It's not perfect man because he's not he's not well I mean obviously it he took on a human nature but God himself is not man. so, so what, what is this perfection of which we speak? It, it, it is profoundly beyond our comprehension. uh, We, too, in trying to contemplate God, mystics run into something that's very much like, I dare say, what Socrates is wrestling with here on a natural level. You you, you run into a certain opacity, a certain denseness of the power and beauty of that which is perfectly good. Well, Well, what is it? This gives an astounding angle into just this aspect if i may put it this way before we go on break as a christian here is philosophy doing something wonderful for us clearly what socrates is seeing is an insight into god even if he's not seeing it perfect obviously not seeing it perfectly but it's an insight into god and isn't it rather dramatic to watch this, this this great among the philosophers saying these things about the form of good And realizing he's falling short of still understanding God. But we know by divine revelation that that God itself, himself, took on human nature and put on a human face. And that goodness itself started to try to teach us about itself. And that's something Socrates couldn't imagine. Here he is simply standing in awe of the form of the good that stays up there. But as we're about to see, as we pick up after the break, he is going to say that the form of the good did do us a favor. It made something in the natural realm, the material realm, that give us, gives us insights to what it is. The sun, the S-U-N. All right. I just am making an executive decision not to talk about the sun. I just point out isn't it interesting that for Socrates the part of the order of reality is that there would be something in the physical realm the material realm that is analogous to and revelatory of the highest of things and so he says I don't know what to say about the good, the form of the good in itself, but I do have confidence that the good has an offspring in the material realm, namely the sun. And so if we look at the sun, we can figure out, we can reason to certain things about the highest of realities, goodness itself by how the sun acts. And this shows how Plato is going to be thinking here regularly. He has this beautiful confidence that lower things are revelatory of higher things. The lower things can lead our minds towards higher things. All right, which brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to the divided line. Now, um, Andy, I sent you a file. Do you want to send it to people so that they could try to use it? or should I just kind of hold something here up in front of my uh, camera?
3: Definitely the latter.
2: All right, there we go. Going down the middle of this page is a line. It's divided right here. Now I've put some letters along here to help us see what's going on, but I'm hoping that you'll write this down on something where I'm gonna read this backwards, all right? So we got A is the top point on the line, Come down. We got B as that point. B is not quite the middle point. It's a little bit more than halfway down. All right. Then the very bottom of the line is the D. But then between B and D is a point that's a little bit more than halfway down from B to D, and that's C. So I'm going to say that all again. We got A at the top of the line. We got D at the bottom of the line. If you come down the line a little bit more than halfway we put our little cross hash there and i'm calling that b then come down ideally what it would be is the same percentage of the of the distance from b to d in other words a little more than half then that's where the c is so we've got then d at the bottom now up here i've written forms to name basically the area from a to b The area from A to B, that top part of the line, that represents the realm of the forms. So technically it also includes in it mathematical objects. So if we're a little better, uh, fuller representation, we write forms, and then below that we'd write mathematical objects. I I note that we're not going to focus on that. That word over there is intelligible. This is also called the realm of the intelligible. All right, now, down here on the bottom, this right here, instead of the realm of the intelligible, it's called the realm of the visible. But the division of the bottom half of the line, or so less than half, being divided into two parts, it's important that you know what the top part of the bottom part and the bottom part of the bottom part are. The top part of the bottom part says material objects. And then the bottom part of the bottom part says images what that means is we're calling the whole a to b the realm of the form so there's technically there's actually a top part of the top part and a lower part of the top part and the top part of the top part would be forms And then you'd have mathematical objects for our purposes we're not going to worry about that then you come down to the top part of the, or the bottom part which is b to c and that's called material objects And then C to D, the bottom part of the bottom part is images. This whole realm down here is the realm of the visible. So the the realm of the visible, ladies and gentlemen, is literally then the realm of the material, because material is visible. That's what I mean. When he says it's the realm of the visible, it's the realm of what can be sensed. So the material world around us is what that is. Bear in mind, the divided line, ladies and gentlemen, itself, he says, I'm now going to give you an image to help you understand how we divide reality. So the line is reality, everything that exists. So there's a higher part of reality and there's a lower part of reality. Ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, in the history of thought, Socrates is the very first thinker to make absolutely explicit and programmatic that there is a whole realm of reality, the more important realm that is absolutely and simply immaterial. He is the first thinker who is absolutely clear on that. The realm of the spiritual, the realm of the immaterial, that it is real and indeed that it is more real. That it's hard for the human mind that is so rooted in our senses. We so kind of verify that things are there by touching it and sensing it. It can be very hard for us to, I mean, think how many brilliant, at least in some sense, men there are today who are just absolutely convinced that it's silly to hold that anything exists other than what is empirically reachable by our senses. I go on, so that reality that he holds, and he he's being intentional when he says. You de- don't divide the line in half. Divide it into two parts where one part's bigger than the other part. That's his way of saying, let's just be clear. It's the more noble. It's the higher part of the line. And let's just make it bigger to bring him. It's not a matter of quantity, but it's just a matter of this is the more real part of reality. But note how, as a philosopher, he, he has he has. This, always this great combination in Plato. A great humility of what the human mind can do, and a great boldness of what the human mind can do. He always keeps that intention. I say that's a great sign of a wise man. Don't underestimate what the human mind can do. Don't overestimate it. Always remaining very humble, nonetheless confident. Not skeptical, humble. There's a difference. He's not skeptical that the human mind can know the realm of the immaterial. Indeed, that's what he thinks the human mind is made to do, and it can, even if it struggles in doing so. The human mind can come to know the realm of the spiritual, the higher realm, that what he's calling intelligible. Intelligible is opposed to visible. What's intelligible is what's graspable by the intellect. Our intellect can grasp those unchanging ways of being that he holds to be in themselves immaterial. Aristotle's going to come to have a slightly more s- subtle explanation of what these universal natures are, it, which we're not going to be able to do at the moment. I'm just giving you the basic divided line here of Plato. All right, so we've got the forms. Now, he- here is what we're going to get mathematical for a moment, because this is how he wants you to use this, and so I want to, I want to go ahead and get this done. I like this aspect of mathematics. I love proportionality. So consider this. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to do this on your own, Uh, but I'm not going to make someone raise their hand and and, and chime in. So just everyone do it on your own. Looking at these letters in naming line segments, given how I've set it up here, I need you to say this for me. This segment is to this segment as this segment is to this segment. You set that up as a mathematical equality. So it will be, ba-ba, division bar, Ba blah, line segment. this line segment is to this line segment as this line segment is to this that line segment. Give that a try for a moment using those letters. I'm giving you about 15 more seconds. And there's an important philosophical point. There's actually a couple of them, given the proportions here that you could say right now that would be true. But it's gonna be significant for conveying a very important part of what he wants you to learn, which I think is a very beautiful point from this divided line. Okay, I've given you your time. How about how about this? So, did anyone do this one? Andy has A B is to B C as read out. What's the other one say? A B is to B C as B C is to C D. That was a nice guess. <laughs> See, that's, part. that's all right. That's all right. And, and that, You know, I, I, I led you a little bit into temptation there. I don't think that's right, is it? You oh, it's that. right. It is right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You got uh, the wrong answer book. <laughs> this is what happens when you cheat. You just copied from someone who didn't know what he was doing, huh? <laughs> that's not father sitting next to you, feeding you the wrong answers? It's not. I'm sure it's not. All right, he's our boss. All right, we don't say such thing. You said AB is to BC, but the whole of the top is the top of the bottom as what? As BC is to CD?
3: Well, we don't need it all too much on my example. Yeah, but no,
2: we won't. My, <laughs> it could have been right, but it's not. But anyway, all right, so look. The one that I want you to do here is AB is to BD. The whole top is to the whole bottom as the top of the bottom is to the bottom of the bottom, right? In other words, remember I said that the whole line was divided, not quite in half, but a little bit, the top A down to B is a little bit more than half than B down to D, right? So the whole top to the bottom, AB, the top, the one with the the forms, is to BD the realm of the visible, as the top of the bottom, BC, is to CD. All right, so look, given that, here's what he's trying to say. Start with this. We'll say it the other way around. BC is to CD. The top of the bottom is to the bottom of the bottom, as the top of the whole line is to the bottom of the whole line. Point being is this. What is the relationship now between the part that we call BC to CD? What is that relationship? Well, in the bottom, the realm of the visible, he divided the realm of the visible into material objects and images. Here's what he means. Material object. Example of a material object is a tree. What's an example of an image of a tree? Well, right outside my window, though it's dark right now, are big trees, most of them down by the edge, are sycamores alongside the Shenandoah River. So in the Shenandoah River, on the water, is an image of the tree. All right? Of course, you can do that with a mirror. So the material object is the tree. The image is any place there's a reflection. All right? That's what he means by material objects and images. In the world around us, you got original things, and then you got images of them. You can call a photo, something in a mirror, an image, a reflection, a puddle on the ground. Everybody good? All right. So BC, the material objects, are the originals of which CD are the images. So look at the mathematical thing we just did. We said BC is to CD. And what's that relationship? Give it a name. Original to image. Original to image. BC is to CD as AB is to BD. Now AB is the realm of the intelligible and BD is the whole realm of the visible. So if BC is to CD as AB is to BD, then what is he saying is the relationship between the realm of the intelligible forms and the whole realm of the material. Someone's got to raise your hand and tell me. What is he saying is the relationship of the realm of the forms, the immaterial realm to the realm of the material. Someone tell me. Jane, throw it at me.
0: I'm probably totally lost, but is it a matter of usefulness?
2: Well, you're not totally lost, and that is going to be very relevant. But I need you to say it in a slightly different way to be more precise. How is there going to be a usefulness? And I want you to follow more closely. What is the relationship of BC to CD? Let's follow more closely the analogy. BC is to CD as original to image. So, therefore, the whole top is related to the whole bottom. I I just need you to say the same thing. The realm of forms is related to the realm of the visible as what to what? Just say the same thing. Original to image.
0: Um, Original to image, but the image... Leads you to...
2: That's why what you're saying was right, Jane. That's what you were seeing. Yeah. And that's why I say yes. You are right. In, in other words, this seems simple, but note this conviction he has. Everything in the realm of the material is showing forth something of the realm of the immaterial. Just as an image of a tree It's not the tree. It's just an image of it. Yeah. So there's a real difference between image and original, but there's a very close relation. And I I knew when you said it, Jane, the way you were thinking was the way you were expressing by useful was by seeing the image, it moves your mind to the original. To a deeper
0: truth almost.
2: Correct. Oh, I'm going to put that down for a second. I want to move on to the cave, but we do have to have that straight because that is going to help us understand that that is the necessary background to understand his infamous thing of the cave doesn't really make any sense unless you fundamentally have this. All right. So what is he claiming about all the realm of material reality? I saw something flash on the screen, by the way, that said something about the realm of becoming and the realm of being. Which is it is correct? The whole realm of the visible is things that are becoming, things that are changing, and the realm of the intelligible, the forms, are what he calls the realm of being, which is which is unchanging. That is absolutely so. That's part of this picture. The thing that I was particularly emphasizing, though, and that he is emphasizing by the proportionality, is to see again the importance of image. Can we just think about this for a moment? Socrates is convinced I think we two should be approaching material reality this way too. You always can learn something from it. You can learn something about higher things. <laughs> Tell me what, um, yes. I'm looking at the bottom of my screen. The material world is the image of the immaterial world. And the answer is yes. That's right. And now here, here, here's a cool thing. Look what you can learn from the material world. You even can learn to see what it means to have an image and an original that you have this kind of, dare I say, funky and astounding thing as you walk along a river and you've got all those beautiful trees there. You look in the river and there are the trees. <laughs> it's like, what are they doing there? Here's an image. There's the original. There's a sameness. There's a difference. Between an image and the original, that's an image of the notion of image, ladies and gentlemen, is profoundly important in reality. Is that not one of the most important original notions that's used in Genesis that something can be made to the image of something else? So, here Plato is looking at the material world, and he's and, and you learn in it image, original, image, original, it's going on all the time, and then. He says, all right, let's realize, oh my goodness, as surely as the reflection of the tree is not the tree, but tells you something about the tree, is a likeness of the tree, as surely this whole material realm is like unto the immaterial realm as being an image of it. And this gives a basis then for thinking about how one must raise one's mind up above. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's start reading. I'm going to read you the opening of book seven. If there's one thing that tends to show up in a college textbook on philosophy from the ancient world, it's going to be this. And now you've just been given the key to understanding what's going on in Plato's cave. The opening of Book Seven says, "I'm on my page 186. It's at 5:14." Next, I said, "Compare the effect of education." So here he's just he's just done kind of metaphysical heights. He's 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 left behind the education thing. He's left behind the morality thing, and just wanted to talk about reality a little bit, and the basic division, the hierarchy in reality. And now, quick, he's back to talking about education. Compare the effect of education and the lack of it on our nature, to an experience like this. Imagine human beings living in an underground cave-like dwelling, with an entrance a long way up, which is both open to the light and as wide as the cave itself. They've been there since childhood, fixed in the same place, with their necks and legs fettered, able to see only in front of them because their bonds prevent them from turning their heads around. Light is provided by a fire burning fire far above and behind them. Also behind them, but on higher ground, there's a path stretching between them and the fire. Imagine that along this path, a low wall has been built like the screen in front of puppeteers above which they show their puppets. And he tells me he's imagining it. Then also imagine that there are people along the wall carrying all kinds of artifacts that project above it. Statues of people and other animals made out of stone. And as you'd expect, some of the characters so, right, are talking, some are silent. All right, let's pause. Rather than, rather, rather than reading through, you've already read it. I'm not going to hold up a picture. you got to use your imagination. All right, here's an exciting moment. we gotta, we got we to be able to use our imagination well. Let's sketch sketch it down on a piece of paper if you need to. You've got the underground cave, and you've got the above ground underground now is where the people are. Now, down there, they're sitting against a wall. They're looking at a wall. Behind them is a fire and statues are being carried along in front of the fire. So they're facing this way. And the images of these statues is being projected on the wall that they're sitting here. They're sitting sitting in a line with my nose. Over here is the wall they're looking at. Behind their backs uh, are statues being carried along. And the fire is here. Fire hitting light shining this way, shining on these statues, projecting an image on this wall. They're sitting here looking at that. That's all in the underground. Above ground are trees and birds and the sun. All right, first thing I need you to do before we talk about the guy getting dragged out, what I need you to understand is how the cave matches up directly to the divided line. Take your divided line again. The whole realm of the visible, of course, is the underground, is the cave. The whole realm of the intelligible or the forms is the bright, open outside world. Now, down there in the cave, this is one of the most dramatic aspects, ladies and gentlemen. I'm about to drop a little bomb on you that's going to scare you. All right. Interestingly, he has set it up so that in the cave, you're not just sitting there looking at statues. You're looking at images of the statues. The statues have images of them on the wall because there's a fire over here, remember? So, down here in the cave, you have originals and images. Images on the wall and statues. Statues are the originals, shadows on the wall are the images. Are we together? So how does this match up with the material realm? Well, remember, in the material realm, you had material objects and images. The material objects, of course, are, match up in the cave to the statues. The images are the shadows on the wall. Are we all together? Does that make sense? Now, of course, bear in mind, in that cave, we just said that there's are statues. So it's statues of things like a coyote, a tree, a bird. They're statues, right? Well, Statues themselves, by the fact of being a statue, are what? They're images of something, of the real. So if you happen to get out of this cave, which is not by any stretch of the imagination a given, if you get out of this cave, guess what you're going to see? Coyotes and birds and trees, which are the originals of the statues, the statues are images of those originals as a statue is an image of an original. But then over here on the wall, you add shadows from these. So you've got original to image going on there too. Do you see how this matches up perfectly to this? The forms are the originals. So the forms are the birds and the trees out in the sunshine come underground. Underground, what are the material objects? They're the statues. What are the images? Those are the shadows on the wall. I need you to understand that. Have I been clear? Are there any questions? All right. So here's the thing. You might have thoughts to yourself. Why does he say that people begin by being chained to where they're only looking at the shadows on the wall? What that would mean is it seems what he's saying is, in reality, people aren't even looking at the trees. They're looking at the shadows in the water. they are I mean, like, even down in the cave, they're not even seeing the originals of the images. They're obsessed with the images. They are changed to a wall where, first of all, they don't even realize that the shadows that they're seeing are an image of the statues that are going behind them. So the first stage is they need to be unchained. So they turn around and they go, oh, huh, you know what? Those shadows on the wall, they were just images of these statues. Then as education goes on and they are dragged out of the cave, then they go, oh, oh my goodness, there's there's a real tree. I thought that statue of a tree was the real deal, but in fact, this tree out here, now that's the action. Now, maybe this is just John Cutterback being, uh, there's, there's, there's no absolute interpretation of this, ladies and gentlemen, but um, rather than say, because we're running out of time, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it at you. I mean, d- dare I say it again, they're obsessed with images. All right. Well, you know where I'm going. When I started teaching this text 25 years ago, of course, what the word I just said right now was television, right? In other words, h- how many people have become up, up, obsessed with, not, not even just kind of the material realm, but images of the material realm. Now, now we live, I, uh, just came back from a, from a trip where I was at Oxford. Believe it or not, it was my first time there. It was astounding. Now, I, I'd never seen this before. Maybe i have been, been too sheltered, but people were walking around the city of Oxford, which was the most stunning uh, uh, ar- architecture in, in such quantity in a place I've ever seen. And you, you know how a lot of people walked around? They weren't holding maps. They were, they were using their handheld device following pins. Here's where you are, and here's where you're trying to go. And so they're kind of walking along through Oxford. Stare, this, you know, it's, it's GPS. I, I knew people use GPS in the car. This was GPS in the hand, and we're, and we're, and we're going along, and, and they're walking past all these great things following the pins to get to where they're going, what they're going to do when they get where they're going. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to make a big deal of it. That aspect. We live in an age where we are rather obsessed with screens and images of things. I simply present for your consideration in terms of Plato's cave, that that's very interesting that for Plato, the first stage of kind of setting people free is to have them not look at the image of the material thing, but have them look at the material thing. I think that's worth starting with that indeed particularly with today's generation and maybe with ourselves we need to just start looking at trees but of course ultimately the trees are, are just themselves a stepping stone to something much ha- much higher just as surely as the image on the wall was nothing but an image of an original statue even the now that statue itself is but an image of this higher and truer reality, which when you come to see it, you think, wow, that's where things really are. This famous analogy of the cave, ladies and gentlemen, has so much richness and at root, one way of saying it is he is focusing our attention on what does it take to bring the human minds to tune in to the things that are most real, and most people live their lives moving on a level where they're convinced that this is all there is. Isn't this a powerful image, especially for a a world that tends to be very materialist and rejecting of, of the higher realm? I mean, what more powerful image Sorry to overuse the word image. For that, can we have of imagine if you were born in the cave. This, this is why the image is so powerful and so enduring. Imagine that you were born in a cave and it were completely enclosed such that, or, or I mean, there's an opening over there, but you're never brought towards the opening. So you're not seeing any light coming from it. You wouldn't, of course, know that you were in what is a cave. You would just think that this is what is until perhaps one great day. Someone, and it's very fascinating, he chooses all every aspect of his chosen very, very carefully. Isn't it interesting? He, Socrates does not speak of someone breaking free himself and scaling up. He thinks such a thing only happens by teaching. Something, someone who acts as a teacher, someone who knows, someone who has seen, comes and somehow finds a way to help you, in his words, turn around. In a Latinate word, turn around, of course, is to convert. To turn around and to look up. And for the first time to see. So this is this is this is you see how to, to, to appreciate what he's gonna say here about education is somebody who has the vision of the higher things, the unchanging things, comes and tries to draw the vision of others to it. How are we doing here? Any questions at the moment? Yeah, Linda.
0: It's, it, it's
1: not a question, but I'm sitting here thinking maybe on this contemplative thing. It's a, it seems as if what you're saying, what it is by coming from the womb and giving birth and coming into the world, this whole cave, you're coming out of that cave, you're coming out of the womb and giving birth,
0: which brings you to the world.
2: It, isn't it fascinating how many as it were images that's right there are to to convey these things and i i i think i think therein is another one i mean you you you, you begin where it is not yet where you are going towards and and you need to be prepared and something is going to have to bring you, bring you across as it were, (laughs) dare I say, it's going to be a joint effort. You know, there's a lot of beautiful things you could do right there, Linda. I'm with you. Anything else at the moment? Two things coming in through the chat box that I think
3: are related. Good. Mark is writing and says forms are the reality. The material is just an example of the form. And then also Jim writes in and is asking, so is the material world not real just like an image is not real?
2: Okay. Wow. <laughs> great. Great, great, great. Here, here, here's the thing. I have to warn you that Plato is a great teacher, but he's not as good as teachers, his own student is Aristotle. And in God's great providence of, of Plato coming to see these things, here I am, here I am kind of focusing you on the great insight here, but there are certain key things where Socrates, Plato fall short, and if I were to answer that, that's a perfect question because in Socrates' terms, in Plato's terms, they I would say what is their mistake? Having come upon this astounding insight, they lose their balance a little bit and end up treating the entire material realm as though it were just just passing shadows. And they don't end up giving it its full due. If anyone remembers the famous painting, The School of Athens, there's Plato and Aristotle. Plato is like this with his book pointing up and, on the, and sitting on the, right across from him is, is Aristotle and his finger is pointing down. And Aristotle A- is the one who kind of regrounds us, and he, he he keeps the whole insight of. The ultimate meaning of the realm of the material is to move us towards the realm of the immaterial, but ultimately not losing, not losing the reality of the material world. Aristotle retains the incredibly important insight that's very important that you brought that up, lest you leave this thinking, okay, great. Then, you know, the realm of the material, that's just kind of passing and flighty and not even really real. And so it's all about the spiritual. Ladies and gentlemen, I need to say this to you. And Aristotle, the great student, brings this out, taking the great insights of of Plato, Socrates, he actually ends up holding. Then the truer insight is that the material realm has a profound solidity in itself. Its reality ultimately still gets its meaning from its pointing upwards, but from its being able to show it forth. From it being a kind of incarnation in many ways of the truths that are above, and this is many it is human nature itself that most of all bears this out that our body has its greatest dignity in its being that through which spiritual realities can be expressed right that i can that I can pick up my son and hold his face to mine, and with my hands and by giving him a kiss on the lips, be expressing a profoundly immaterial and spiritual reality in and through something that is also very real, the material, but a material that gets its meaning from the immaterial. So to be direct to your answer for Plato, he does ultimately leave the material is more passing shadow, which Aristotle is going to have to correct him on. Great question. I just a little bit of huffer and a puffer. Are there any other questions I need to point to right now? All right. I think I'm going to have to make an executive decision here and not end up giving his great argument as to why the just life is happier. <laughs> You're just going to have to believe him. All right. But, but rather I'm going to wrap up on a few great points about education that he has. I, I just leave you with a few things. And, and remember, we all need to be educated. We all need mentors to educate us and the more that we are being educated Formed as persons, the more we'll be in the position to do it for others. So 518 D, 518 David. I'm just gonna say here's another quotation on education. Four fifths of the way down page 190, 518 D. Then education is the craft concerned with doing this very thing, this turning around, and with how the soul can most easily and effectively be made to do it. It isn't the craft of putting sight into the soul. Education takes for granted that sight is there, but that it isn't turned the right way or looking where it ought, and it tries to redirect it appropriately. Isn't that beautiful, even the very notion of education as a kind of drawing out, as a here, look here, look with me. That, that's what education is. He, 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 here's another one. I'm at fi- right after that, I'm at 519 alpha and beta. 519 alpha and beta, which is on my page 191. However, if a nature of this sort had been hammered at from childhood, and hammered at, as a smith works on the metal, not like, you know, okay, let's pummel them. Hammered at from childhood and freed from the bonds of kinship with becoming which have been fastened to it by feasting, greed, and other such pleasures, and which like leaden weights pull its vision downwards. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a dark point, but but one that we, we need to understand, and ultimately it gives light. Our vision is clouded by immoderate desires, immoderate pleasures. It says, by feasting and greed and other such pleasures, which like leaden weights, pull its vision downward. Ladies and gentlemen, Socrates is highly aware of the moral aspect of education. In other words, the proper formation of appetite. And this is going to be my last point with you. And on this, Socrates and Plato are simply brilliant. And Aristotle, their student, simply follows them and does not need to correct them. They saw that the human soul is blinded by immoderation, by allowing our lower desires to overrun us, to rule us. It is literally blinding. And so central in their understanding of education is the necessity of working towards discipline of moderating our bodily desires are not, not not just talking about the realm of food and sexuality. It's also for, for material possessions in general, all of these things, all of our desires precisely for the realm of the material. They are not evil. They are not wrong they must be ordered and to the extent that they're disordered they will blind our vision so their key insight that a key aspect of forming ourselves to see a key aspect of the contemplative life there's a reason that in a contemplative religious community a a constant asceticism is a part of their cultivating their insights they're not just giving up food and so forth as well we'll just make this sacrifice it's part of of a disciplining of the soul to be converted towards the higher things. Not that the material are intrinsically bad or sullied, but that we must be purified in our desires. And now I, I have to read you. I go to 527D. 527D. All right, this is one that I love to read to people that, if they're when they're thinking about what kind of education to get. Here he's actually talking about the importance of doing certain liberal studies. This is part of his under part of education. So what what have we given you? I'm giving, I'm going to leave you with three basic principles about education. One of them is this aspect of it. it it's to help turn the vision, turn the vision towards the good and beautiful things and the higher things. One, two, We it's education is formation of the appetite, especially as amplified by the fact that bad appetite is blinding to us. Three, the fact that certain kinds of studies discipline the mind and make it more capable of seeing higher things. And that's where I'm on. My page 200, it's 527. David going into Edward. We can't give you the background. We don't have time. You amuse me, Socrates says. You're like someone who's afraid that the majority will think he is prescribing useless subjects. It's no easy task. Indeed, it's very difficult to realize that in every soul, here's, here's my parting admonition to you from Socrates. In every soul, there is an instrument that is purified and rekindled by such subjects when it has been blinded and destroyed by other ways of life. Pause. Isn't it beautiful? The human soul always can be repurified no matter how bad your background is, no matter how much has been hurt or sullied. There's an instrument within us that can be purified by turning again. To be rekindled by subjects when it's been blinded and destroyed by other ways of life. An instrument that's more important to preserve than 10,000 eyes since only with it can the truth be seen. Those who share your belief that this is so will think you're speaking incredibly well, while those who've never been aware of it will probably think you're talking nonsense, since they see no benefit worth mentioning in these subjects. So decide right now which group you're addressing. He was saying that in the context of talking about the the, the traditional liberal arts as as purifying the mind, as preparing the mind to see the highest things. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to stop there. And so I'm just going to say thank you very much. I would that we had occasion to answer the questions better and more in depth and do a little bit more. I hope that gave you a little bit of sense of what's going on out there. And I say, thank you. God bless you. And I turn it back, back over to Andy. And thank you for the Thank you notes there coming up on the bottom of my page. I really appreciate it.
3: There you Great go. Be with you. You're very much loved and appreciated. Thank you, Dr. Keller.
2: Yes. Well, thank I'm, I'm over here very much loving and appreciating being able to be with together with you all. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. All right. I love being with you guys. Take care.
3: Good
0: night. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.